Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast contains explicit language. Hey there, and welcome back to Candidate Confessional. I am Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And today, Sam, we're going to bring the listener a completely different type of episode than anything we've really done before. Yes. So many candidates that we've interviewed for this podcast, they decided to run for office because they sensed an opening or they just like felt it was their time to run. Even Anthony Weiner, in the midst of his scandal in 2013, felt like it was his time to run for mayor, that the window would have closed if he didn't do it then. Talk about a sense of entitlement. But the, <laughs> the question confronting a select few candidates is, how do you know it's your time when the campaign you're envisioning has never really been done before at all? Exactly. This is the question that confronted the Reverend Jesse Jackson in 1984 when he launched his historic presidential bid. You know, before even jumping into that race, he hesitated for months about whether to run at all. There are many factors that Jackson had to confront, and one of the most important was that he'd seen African-Americans become mayors of major cities, people like Tom Brady in L.A. and Marion Barry in Washington, D.C., giving him hope that there was opportunity there. Yeah, that was inspiring, but then there was another mayor race that gave him a little bit of pause. So in 1983, in Chicago, Democratic Party leaders had endorsed the white opponents of Harold Washington, a man who would become the city's first African-American mayor. Now, Jackson couldn't believe that these leaders would get involved in a mayoral primary, especially when there was a viable black candidate on the ticket. This motivated Jackson, I think, more than anything else. He realized that there was never going to be a white establishment sort of tapping an African-American candidate and sort of spurring them to run, encouraging them to run. So he felt like he just had to do it. But even before he formally began his run, there were obvious signs that racism was still pervasive. For instance, when he checked out Iowa for the first time, a union leader told the newspaper, quote, you put him out in the streets of Des Moines, and he's in political trouble. He doesn't have an audience to play to. The music is different here. The question Jackson needed to answer before he decided to run was, could he play in America? Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. So when you decided to run for the first time for president of the United States... Talk to us about what the strategic decision was in launching a presidential campaign. The decision was to expand the options for civil rights and social justice, to build up on the existing democratic coalition as we knew it to be at that time. We were in a dead heat campaign for Harold Washington for our mayor. And the three-person race with Jane Brennan and Daly, we thought we could win. And then we heard that Kennedy and Mondale were coming to Chicago to support Daly and Jane Byrne. We could not imagine they were coming in a primary to defeat an African-American viable candidate. So we put together a telegram, if you will, 100 names, Willie Brown, Mrs. King, and a lot of us. Please don't interfere with this campaign. Let us accept the general election. And they wrote back essentially and said that they had to come because Jane Byrne and they did it with their friends. I said, what, what are we? <laughs> I said, somebody has to run in this to open up this process. 
I appealed to Maynard Jackson to run because Maynard had all the right credentials, had been mayor, was an able lawyer, a very articulate spokesman. He said, no, I've, I've been mayor. I'm building a business now to sustain my family this phase of my life. I tried to get Andy Young to run, who likewise had these outstanding credentials as a congressman and Dr. King's aide and um, work at the United Nations. He didn't want to do it, thought it was impractical, really. And I kept reading someone had to do it. And at some point, as we were doing a Southern voter campaign, people started saying, run, just run. We focused in the South because the Democratic Party had stopped investing in Southern registration. Fear might defeat some white Democrats. Labor wouldn't invest for fear that they could not win against right-to-work laws in the first place. But we knew if we expanded the party in the South, we'd have a chance of winning. And so by... Because for 84 campaign, Democrats regained the Senate in 86. We put on almost 3 million new votes. Now, was and, there— And what happened was when we decided to run, we, we set up certain goals. We knew that the issues that mattered to us the most, we could not get on the table without being on the stage. One issue was uh, protected the right to vote, which we saw as being jeopardized because the schemes on the mind of vote were being undercut by— um, uh, as opposed to one person, one vote, you had these uh, caucuses, yeah. uh, which were very public and often intimidating, and gerrymandering and annexation and large rule pressuring and, and the like. We knew that we had to put on the table free Mandela. And the, the Democratic and Republican parties both allied with the African government, thinking that Mandela was a terrorist, impractical. Kissinger was saying that we cannot lose the Cape of Good Hope travel route where Indian Atlantic Oceans come together. And so uh, a new Middle East policy, a let's talk versus no talk policy, sure. indeed, indeed a two-story policy. Now, I read that there was a little bit of, I don't want to say discomfort, but there was concerns in part because a lot of the African-American leaders at the time had already endorsed presidential candidates. Well, they had endorsed them out of a, a, a surrender to limited, limited options. It never occurred to them what it would mean for us to be on that stage with an ambition higher than to go along to get along. They could not imagine an African-American thinking running was a, a practical thing to do. They said, why would you go to Iowa, all those white people in Iowa? You can't get those <laughs> in, in Iowa. Well, there's some of those whites wouldn't vote for blacks like blacks voted for whites. So our goal was a modest goal of double digits, and we, we came in third or fourth place in Iowa. That was like a breakthrough, yeah. Greenfield, Iowa, and the cornfields, because this family farmer in Iowa uh, who lost out to the corporate farmer and the urban worker lost out to corporate uh, trade policies had much in common, more than they realized they had in common. The rural farmer looked at the urban black unemployed and said, they need to work up there. What did you discover? And, and, and the urban worker was saying to family farmers, they're getting money for not farming. Yeah, but what did you discover when you got out there? Well, I discovered that was that was in many circles great reception. Uh, and and uh, we were drawing huge crowds of people, some I'm sure out of curiosity, others out of interest in the positions we were taking, fighting for family farmers and fighting for livable wages and fighting for easier access to education, easier access to voting. Uh, those issues resonated in, in, in Iowa. <clears throat> but, the, and, but the same issues resonated in Chicago as well. Uh, and so we began to find a, and then there were some African Americans in Iowa who were always ignored. They had a role to play. A church could, could become a caucus. And there were students, and there were progressive farmers. And so we built a coalition and set up in, in Greenfield, Iowa, a rural place about 70 miles north of Des Moines, just to, to root ourselves, and we found great reception. Were you, I mean, it, I think there were discussions about you running, and there was media reports in March of, I think, 83. You waited until, I think, late October, November to announce on 60 Minutes that you were going to run. It seemed like you were personally reluctant at some certain points. What was the calculation? What was the sort I was very of, reluctant because yeah. I had not considered running. Uh, in some sense, mine was a protest run, the fact that We've done our best, and yet Mondale and Kennedy were determined to put exalt Jane Byrne and, and Daly over us in a primary. I mean, they had established limits for us. They had established uh, barriers for us. And I was determined in our civil rights work to remove all barriers and stop them from taking us for granted. 
And I felt if we got involved, that there were issues that they would never touch. It had to be touched. The issue of expanding Southern voter registration is a building Southern white, black coalitions. The issue of reconnecting with Cuba and our own hemisphere, the issue of a two-state Middle East policy, the issue of stopping the drug flow from coming to our country, thought that time to be impractical, unpolitic. Uh, the issue of these issues, we felt we had to get on the table to begin to maintain the momentum of our struggle. And let me ask you, how immediate was the racial backlash? Because uh, your headquarters were was carpet bombed or was bombed, sorry. And then I read that you received something like 300 and. 15 death threats during the course of the 84 campaign? Well, there were a lot of death threats. The, the, the audacity of running uh, challenged challenge a lot of people's perception of, of our place, quote-unquote, where we should be in the scheme of things. But there's a constant tug of war for the soul of America. And there are those who want to pull backwards towards slavery and others want to pull forward toward abolition. Those want to pull backward towards segregation. Those want to pull forward toward desegregation. Those who choose hate and those who choose love. And so there's this tug of war. And you only lose when you drop the rope. I often say you don't drown because the water's deep. You drown because you stop kicking. And we have to keep kicking keep pushing. Were you ever personally worried about the death threats? I was not in that I had to come to grips with this issue of mortality and death. Worried for my family, yes, because... Uh, in one instance, they cut a, a hog head off, dead hog, on the doorsteps of our organization. My family received threats, and they were not accustomed to the level of intensity of the threats. So much so, the first day that we announced, they put Secret Service on that day because of fear of reaction. But just as there were those who were dead set, set on stopping this forward progress for women and people of color. Uh, we were dead set on going forward. And the deeper we got into the water, the clearer it was that we could, in fact, match wits and, and match ideas with the best of what others had offered. Now, I look and find myself in a race with, with uh, Glenn, who had been to the moon, uh, and Hollins, who had been governor when I was growing up in South Carolina. And I remember Barbara Walters saying one time, Jesse, you must be uh, pleased that you're on the same stage with them now. I said, we had to come from further to get here. It, it was clear it was becoming a racial breakthrough, mm. a cultural breakthrough. A new dynamic was emerging. And if we could pull this off, it would begin to change the world. That became more apparent the deeper we got in it. I was talking to President Barack Obama one day. He said he was a student at Columbia when Hart and Mondale and I were debating. Poor Reagan is vulnerable, and we keep talking in ways I think that kind of confuse the people, that he's cut breakfast programs out from children. He's cut lunch programs out. He's cut back on food stamps, hurting the rural farmer and the urban consumer. And while he cuts away food from children, he then off gathers arguing about prayer, uh, unmed uh, prayer, premeditated prayer. Here's a man doesn't go to church, got us arguing about prayer. And... Uh, and he said he was a student. He saw the debate and said, as a conclusion, this thing can happen. Huh. It may be the most rewarding statement I've, I've heard in the whole process. He, he looked at the debate. Our, part of our job was to plant seeds to, to, to lay groundwork for the future. Is he looked at that debate as a student and said, this can happen. What, what we really should do is prayed to remove the man that's removing the food. He's vulnerable at the level of the, of the misery index. I mean, people are hurting. They are more un, the people who are now unemployed have fewer benefits and less food and less medical care. Our base are those boats stuck at the bottom. It's, it's difficult to talk about the 84 campaign without talking about how it ended. And that, of course, is uh, with the Heimitown controversy. And that's not how it ended. Well, it's sorry, how it came to an end, I should say. Can you talk well, about the Heimitown issue? If you, if you swing the bat enough times, you're going to strike out sometimes. <laughs> that's and true. You no one bats a thousand. You're going to lose when you don't show up and you make mistakes. And you, uh, if there are mistakes and you apologize with contrition in your heart and you move on. That's what we did. We didn't, we didn't linger there because 
there are more issues involved for us than that. The issue of a two-state Middle East solution as opposed to no-talk policy, which is law now. The issue of free Mandela as opposed to embracing uh, the Afrikaners, um, that's the law now. Uh, the issue of addressing the drug issue in a meaningful way, that's the Department of the Government now. The issue of reconnect with Cuba, that's the law now. The issues that we raised to expand the party and our options were considered way out, and now they are the centerpiece because they were always the moral center. And you don't judge uh, a ball player by the hits he got in one inning, inning or the errors in another inning, but by the box score. It did feel like— When, when, when the box score—you look at the box score— we won. We won more voters. We won more recognition. We raised the ambitions of people. Uh, and the rules and the like, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, laid the groundwork for President Barack Obama today and perhaps Hillary Clinton. It did feel like in the moment the press was obsessed with the Town incident to the point where you're talking about that they ignored some other bigger structural things that were happening. Did you feel like you were mistreated? Well, you know, I didn't want to spend a lot of time arguing about the press's choices. One of the big choices we made was to get more African-Americans for the first time covering national campaigns. I mean, Ken Walker, first time ABC covering national campaigns. Gwen Eiffel for the first time covering national campaigns. Uh, uh, George Curry for the first time covering national campaigns. Uh, uh, the uh, Shaw from CNN. Uh, one of the byproducts of that campaign was that it was clearly that you couldn't cover all white writers. And I remember one occasion when the blacks were covering it with uh, looking at these huge crowds of people watching us emerge that the black, the white journalists were saying the black journalists were not covering us uh, properly because they were exaggerating. They were challenging the integrity and judgment of the black journalists. They almost came to fisticuffs at the hotel one day. They said, we see large crowds, we see large crowds. And he's run the biggest crowds. Uh, for whatever reason, they're big, and there'll be evidence that they were big. And the evidence is that we begin to win what they thought we wouldn't win and make impressions that they thought we wouldn't make impressions and learn what we thought we couldn't learn. <laughs> I remember one time we were up in New Hampshire and someone said, well, Reverend, you know, um, we, we're glad you're here. But uh, the morning night we're discussing foreign policy, and if you don't want to uh, be a part of it, you don't have to be. We're discussing foreign policy tomorrow night. I said, I look forward to that. And they said, well, why? I said, because, you know, we came here on the foreign policy. And they said, oh, slave trade was a foreign policy. You know, colonialism was a foreign policy. And so that was a, a, a bit condescending, but I didn't think intentionally so. Uh, and, and that was a consistent, he did this, but he can't win. And I remember at the end of the campaign, someone uh, uh, asked uh, what was the funniest thing that occurred to me. And I told him, as I, as I looked at the press coverage, uh, and we, we registered more voters, drove bigger crowds, raised more issues that, that lasted. As it was like one day, Jesse Jackson was on a boat with the Pope. And they were out in a singular conversation alone. And while they were riding the boat, his, his little cap blew off. And he reached for the cap. The Pope couldn't get it. He stuck a pole out. He couldn't get it. And we reached so he couldn't get the cap. And I got up and walked and got the cap and gave it back to him. And the Pope put it on. And he said, thank you. The headline the next day was, Jesse can't swim. But <laughs> 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 that, that, that was this notion of the underestimation. Uh, I remember Marvin Cap, I suppose, was we were going to uh, maybe meet the press aficionation one Sunday morning. Are you, are you a Negro in America? Uh, uh, an American? I mean, these kind of uh, uh, culturally biased, racially biased questions were raised, and the expectations were limited of us because it was such a new dimension. Little David, little David, took off his unnecessary garments. Little David, didn't want to get weighted down with a lot of foolishness. Little David took what God gave him, a slingshot and a God biscuit, a rock. Our problem today is, David, 
reason we're going to organize Pennsylvania and win because we're going to stop the rocks. It's been laying around and pick them up. In 1980, Reagan won Massachusetts by 2,500 votes. There were over 100,000 students unregistered, over 50,000 blacks, over 50,000 Hispanics. He won by 2,500. Ted Kennedy State. Rocks just laying around. He won Illinois by 300,000 votes. We won Virginia in 84 for the first time ever in the African-American one statewide. Doug Waller became lieutenant governor in 85 because if I could win that, why couldn't the Democratic Party slate Doug Waller? We won Virginia in 88. Doug Waller became governor in 89. And you begin to see Dave Dinkins became mayor of New York City and Rice, uh, mayor of uh, Seattle, and White, the mayor of Cleveland. That, that was a huge body of people running. We, we made the case if you if you run, you might lose. If you don't run, you're guaranteed to lose. So run on. People running for the first time and winning. Yeah, It seemed like, or at least early on, that there was a debate within your campaign to run either as a insurgent campaign or just for— to, to, I guess, increase voter turnout or to actually run a political campaign. And, and, and there was an article here where one source, I think maybe from within the campaign, said no one has made the decision whether to run a political campaign or a religious crusade. And I'm wondering, like, was there internal debates <clears throat> about strategy, about goals? Well, there were. Uh, I made early on clear, clear early on that um, my religion makes me political. My politics don't make me religious. My religion obligates me to fight for the poor, to defend the needy, to fight for comprehensive health care. Everybody matters. My religion obligates me to fight for those whose backs are against the wall and to see the world bottom up, not just top down. My religion obligates me to fight for world peace, not just for a kind of glorified nationalism. So... Religion at its best at its best expands our consciousness and our moral obligation. And there were those in the campaign who were progressives in the political sense, but have no connection with our church tradition, how it, how it resulted in the abolition of slavery, resulted in fighting segregation. I remember two things happened that you brought to my mind. One, we were at Church of God in Christ convocation, thousands of people in Memphis, Tennessee. And the Secret Service were all over the place with the uh, earphones in the ears. And people started shouting. Uh, when they heard something that appealed, and they started running down front. And the Secret <laughs> Service was talking. <laughs> they're coming out front. They're coming out front. They're coming out front. And they thought it wasn't. They were trying to get in the way of people shouting. It was just a cultural thing. Oh, my God. We, we, we went out to uh, Dallas, Texas. I remember Reverend uh, Bayless Church. And we got the, the youth met us. They were doing their routine dances. And uh, and all of a sudden, they stopped. They went and had to meet with the, meeting with the uh, pastor because they read on television. The time I announced, immediately they gave me Secret Service people. Yeah. And they saw these guys with these um, uh, earphones and speakers. And they said, something's going wrong because all the guys that they have with them uh, so they're not first class. These guys, all these guys have hearing problems. <laughs> they got these things in their ears. <laughs> it, it was so funny. Another thing, another thing, we went to Columbia, Missouri. I should never forget once we had become really connected with the farmers and they were really supporting us, really supporting us. And I fell asleep in the car and I woke up and I saw about a thousand people with, with uh, bags over their heads. Secret Service was, was absolutely frightened. They said, we can't go there. So we have to go. What it was, that, and the guys came with the, with the, with, toward the car with the, with the, with the uh, sacks over their heads. And they were saying, Jesse, Jesse. So I knew what that. So what's going on? So it, the whites were saying, if we show our faces, the uh, Farm Bureau will cut our resources. Wow. Oh, my God. And so you had white farmers afraid of the Farm Bureau. And so to support me, they had to cover their faces in Columbia, Missouri. These kind of That's things incredible. happened. I remember one night we were left Des Moines, uh, 
sleeping, so tired. You know, we were working 18 hours a day. And uh, I woke up and I saw this bright light in my face. It was a highway patrolman. I said, I up with the light in the car saying, that's you? We said, yes. They're down the road waiting for you. The church was, at 10 o'clock at night, the church was full of white people. People were, were fascinated and many were learning. And it wasn't, it wasn't that they could vote for me. They had to go in the caucus and argue for me. That's why I knew there was inherent weakness in the caucus because you couldn't vote private and move on. Yeah. I remember coming out of a high school one night and uh, two farmers in their overalls and with their grandchildren. They said, may I see you a minute, sir? And I said, yes. And the Secret Service pushed back. I said, let me talk to them. They looked, you know, innocent, but kind of stunned. One said, Reverend, we heard you tonight. We really, yeah, we really heard you tonight. We're not quite there yet, but don't give up on us. Wow. They were thinking, like, we're not quite there. We can't go to a caucus and argue for you yet with our neighbors, but, but don't give up. We, 20 years later, when President Barack ran, their grandchildren were there. Yes. Mm-hmm. But the seeds were planted then. And in 84. Could you see? Their children got there. Could you see during on campaign stops or when you go into towns that actually happening where you were sort of slowly changing minds or you'd walk into a room and it was a little hostile and then slowly you, you win the room over? Well, but, a guy came to us. I'm trying to figure who it was. I think it may have been Missouri saying, uh, I'm glad to see you, Reverend. We were, I was with you in Selma. I'm glad to see you again. I said, well, good to see you. He said, now, but the, the, the catch-up with the, I was in Selma at that time with the Klan. But I, I understand better now. I, I'm with you. And all the press was 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 stunned, was stunned by his confession. And he, he worked with us the next few days of the campaign. Were you stunned in, by that? In, in some sense. But not totally so. I, I grew up in South Carolina. I always, always knew there was some distinction between people who were trapped within and the system that they were within. Uh, and then the only time I think that, that was at the, end of the press part of it, uh, I went to see Bill Cosby's mother, who was very ill at that time, at, Mount, at Cedars of Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles. And I saw these two guys over in the corner weeping, and I spoke to them and kept walking. And I came back after meeting with Bill's mother and his wife, Camille, and having prayer. And one guy said, uh, Reverend, my wife is in the coma. Will you pray with her? I said, I'd be delighted to do so. He said, well, but, uh, but I'm Jewish. I said, I don't mind. And I went into the room, and, and he said, my wife, she, she likes you. And we walked in the room, and he said, he said honey, honey, Reverend Jackson, said, she opened her eyes, and she never went back. She came, she came out the coma. The next time I saw her, she was in a wheelchair. She came out the coma. And Stan Scheinbaum in, uh, in, in, in Los Angeles, the next day we were, the two guys happened to have been staying at Stan Scheinbaum's home. And we had met the next day. And so one of the guys was a doctor in Atlanta. And he, when they were attacking me about the Jewish question, he wrote the story of how I had prayed for his wife and she snapped out of his coma and yeah. didn't go back Amazing. and submitted it to the New York Times. And all during that campaign, while we were under such violent attack by Koch, they had that story. They printed it the day after the New York primary. They held that story back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So I got to ask you, I mean, this experience in 84 paves the way uh, for a lot of other people. And it certainly was a building block for 1988. And so my question for you is, when you decided to run four years later, what did you learn from the previous campaign? And how did you apply that to run a different type of campaign? Well, in 88, in 84, the idea of the rainbow was an idea. But it was an applied idea because there was more receptivity to our campaign and less doubt about its value. Many mayors in Philadelphia and Detroit who were against us in 84, with us in 88 because we won their cities. And in the primary, increasing registration not only did not hurt them, it enabled them. Some congresspeople, Tyler Rangel, a dear friend of mine, didn't support us in 84. He was a leader in 88 in the campaign. Coleman Young was a leader in the 88 campaign. Mira Good was a leader in the 88 campaign, but not in the 84 campaign. Because it was, it was a cultural shock. It was make a leader, my friend and brother. We've been very close. Jess, I'm with you, but the fact is it's, it's not practical. And he and Ron Dillon were in a debate about should it happen or not. And I remember, I just never forget, Lou Stokes, congressman from Ohio, he, we were very close, close to Lou and his uh, mother and his brother Carl. And he said, "Yes, I'm kind of with this, but uh, with you, but I'm this. I'm not. This idea might not work. And what do we do? So we were there for his annual Labor Day parade. And a little kid came up to him, about 11 years old. I said, Mr. Congressman. He said, Yeah, I'm the congressman. He said, uh, This is Reverend Jackson. He said, I know Reverend Jackson. He said, I want to ask you a question. Can a Black man by the Constitution, love your kid, live, 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 11 years old, run for president and become president. He said, what? Can a black man run for the president, for real? And tears flew up in his eyes. He said, yes, a black man can. He decided to support me on the spot right then. The idea that we were opening eyes and raising ceilings and creating new possibilities, not unlike President at that time, student Barack saying, "Yeah, this thing can happen." Yeah, but what so, about so, what so, about so, you? Uh, what about you personally, though? Had your mind changed at all? Had your strategic ideas changed at all? Had your vision for how to run a campaign Had changed learned, at all? You must have learned something from going through it once. Yeah, what to do, what not to do. We we, we went from four hundred delegates to twelve hundred with about eighteen million dollars. So we learned how to run. You learned to raise more money. How to run cost-efficient <laughs> campaigns. <before. Yeah. laughs> we learned that. Uh, and there were people in 84, based on the things they said, if we had taken the position, they were our lifelong enemies based upon those positions. We could not, we could not have gained their support in 88. Many of those who are anti or cynical or, or disbelieving in 84 became positive allies in 88. Yeah. That's why the campaign numbers doubled. But it seemed like uh, from the press, so, from the uh, press uh, coverage, that you had geared your message a tiny bit differently. Everyone was re- reporting that you were now, you know, it's about economic justice against economic violence. You said the rural farmer and the urban you, consumer could come together. It seemed you, much more you, economics focused. You milked a cow. You, well, yeah, you, you actually did milk you milked a, cow. a cow in Iowa. Yeah, and it was one of the time it wasn't ice cream. <laughs> but it was strange that black cow ate green grass and gave white milk and yellow butter. So that is the Rainbow Coalition. Strange combination. That was the Rainbow Coalition. <laughs> and even the name Rainbow Coalition, when we were thinking, just thinking this is a very new idea. Yeah. Just running, running for dignity, running for self-respect, running not to be marginalized, 
uh, r- running to get our agendas, items on the table. Uh, and I say, well, each campaign had the theme. And I've been to conventions where you got the blacks protesting civil rights and Latinos protesting for bilingual education and Native Americans protesting for sovereignty and women protesting for, for gender equality and, and the like and labor protesting for wages. As you put all this down, more of us outside the convention protesting <laughs> than inside as delegates. So all this equals a rainbow, a multiracial, multicultural coalition with a common thread connecting us all. And that's what the idea of the quilt came. My grandma making the quilt where you have many patches and many pieces, but a common thread connects us all. And some of these ideas and metaphors emerged in the course of that campaign as well. Um, but were you consciously focusing more on economic issues this time? Well, yeah, the first time it, it was more civil rights and social justice ideas. We had grown a lot, had read a lot, and met a lot of people. One of the things about running is a learning experience. If, if you never win, the race, because we were a countercultural force, because we were independent Democrats, because we were the third rail. You know, in Chicago, you've got the, the, the train tracks, mm-hmm. but the power's in the third rail. The third rail determines the heat. Because we, we were that, we kept pushing certain ideas that, that pulled the tracks toward the rail that mattered. And and so by the we we were clear that opposition on Free Mandela. I went to Cuba and brought Americans home from Cuba. Opposition on foreign policy. That we had to have a foreign policy that made sense in the real world. In this world of high technology, there are no more foreigners. And so we put together our own Jacksonian foreign policy doctrine, international law, human rights, self determination, economic justice. And one set of rules that became my guiding principles. So we brought Americans home from Iraq, or Cuba, or Yugoslavia, or where we brought them from. We, we had a lot of ideas. And it was clear that we were, had a side of history that we were that we were, we were read to. And this idea of economic justice really did connect the rural farmer. And the urban worker, but we saw that in '84. I might add. Well, I I can't be the first person to mention this, but um, the the platform that you were running on in '84 and more explicitly in '88, it seems like we're seeing a revitalization in some respects with Bernie Sanders' campaign right now. And I should say he did endorse your '88 campaign. Well, he, he and did. And '84. Yeah, but in many ways, Bernie is running the Jackson campaign in white. Uh, with far much more money, and today's technology much more coverage in so many ways, and and as we sought to broaden the base, many whites would support us, but afraid to face other whites. There's cultural walls and fears. Brandon supported us in '84 and '88. The other issue, I think, the other reason I think that people are responding to him is they re- they appreciate the courage, the courage of this guy. He started out with nothing, with no money. A black man attempting to get elected in a system which has never in a million years thought to elect a black person. And I think people are impressed with his courage, with his dynamism, with his willingness to articulate issues that are relevant to the disenfranchised, the poor people. Fifty percent of the people in America have given up on the political process. They don't even vote. Who talks about those people? And we won Vermont, and which was as much of a shocker then as it was Michigan in 88. Mm-hmm. The idea of building upon the best of our traditions. And, and, and I had learned, you know, as an athlete, that whenever the, there are some rules for relationships, if you plant two seeds of equal strength in the ground and water both of them, and they should look about the same, if you put a wall between them, one will be taller with multiples of fruit, multiples of fruit, and one will be stunted. The taller one with multiples of fruit is not a better one. And the smaller is not less, it's just the one had photosynthesis, it had sunlight. The other did not. To bring down the walls that both can grow. That came out of out of this out of this, out of this sphere of thinking. Uh, we also 
learn that that if you that why do we do so well in athletics? Why do whites and blacks and rural Iowa and Illinois and the like get along so well in an athletic field? Because whenever the playing field is even and the rules are public and the goals are clear, referees are fair and the score is transparent, we can all make it and accept the outcome. We learn to teach as we grow. Did you uh, do you recall ever meeting Bernie Sanders on those campaigns? Oh yeah, we got up in in, in, in uh, up in the northeast country. Did you see greatness for him in that? Oh moment? yeah, because his ideas, he expressed no idea of being a national campaigner at that time. He was just a kind of principled guy who saw the value of our running as helping to fulfill America's dream of inclusion. You talked about. I think the different, like in your '84 race, as running more of a civil rights campaign in some sense. And I'm wondering, like, you know, you were a very established, very experienced civil rights leader before you ran for president. And I'm wondering, like, what were the differences between being a civil rights leader and a presidential candidate? And what did, you, what about being a civil rights leader may have hurt your candidacy? In well, there the, are the, the things about uh, civil rights that have broad application. Uh, I went to South Africa in 1979. I just never got to go off of the plane. And I don't know how I expect I was getting in there and not be seen, really. I went there with the Council of Churches. And they knew I was coming. It had been advertised in the press, which we did not realize. And we stepped off the plane, and there was a big bevy of press there. Why are you here? I went to visit friends. Why are you really here? We just see the countryside. And me and I saw Coca-Cola signs and a lot of American, you know, industry or advertising airport. Why are you here? We're in the churches. What about our politics? And I knew I couldn't get around it, and I was trying to not be put back on the plane. I said, well, I measure human rights, uh, uh, human rights for all human beings. Measure by one yardstick. Good God, I'm a, you're talking about a threat to that system. Human rights for all human beings, and measure human rights by one yardstick. Boy, that is the threat to the tyranny, uh, an even playing field, public rules and clear goals. But I, I, I had seen us operate enough as soldiers where you're in a foxhole fighting against common bullets. You learn to live together in that hole. I've seen, I've seen, I've seen us enough. I've seen us. I had seen us enough on the athletic field. Team A versus Team B, uniform color versus not skin color. I've I seen us learn on the conditions of learning to get better. And of course, having been arrested in 1960 trying to use a public library, I was mu- very much aware of the evolution of, of uh, comfort of many whites overcoming the fears that they've been taught as children. I remember going back to the library after many years and in the library and apologized to those of us who were arrested. And I said that, you know, the children need the, the, the help of the white children. They had been taught that we were inferior and we couldn't learn to read. So they had to unlearn some bad lessons taught well by their parents and by their ministers and by the media. Mm-hmm. We never had to learn that we were not, not uh, superior to whites. And we never learned we were inferior to whites. So that they had to unlearn some bad lessons. So as I watched the society continue to grow, and after all, it's, it's not this mission of one of helping America get better and growing. We, we learn to survive apart, and then we're learning to live together. And in some sense, that's the mission. So when President Barack won many years later, I was not surprised. I was delighted because I knew that the growth process would end up there. <clears throat> so early on in the campaign, um, very early on in the campaign, one of the people who you are going to run against, Gary Hart, is forced from the race uh, out of after reporting about alleged adultery serviced. In that moment, did that change your perception of how the media was covering politics? It seemed like a seminal moment in how presidential campaigns get covered. 
No, it didn't. Not at that time. It was just obvious that that was a kind of a standard. Uh, I might add one for the press and its relations with other press people and one for candidates that were different and that the run for the office was to be put on a perch higher than reality and that there were unforgivable sins in these campaigns and Garrett and, and the challenges toward him because he was so prominent could very well have won. When he was challenged at some point, he let his guard down and said, follow me, and they followed him. And that uh, tore up his campaign. Do you recall what you felt watching it all happen? Did you feel bad for him? I felt bad for him because Gary is a good guy and smart, open mind, a clear vision of domestic and foreign policy and so able as a debater. He was quite professorial. And even even though he grew up in Denver, he had a sense of multicultural comfort that made him quite able to lead the nation. Did you think this is a an extremely uh, unfortunate situation and that the press has really crossed a line here in terms of scrutinizing candidates? I didn't think that. Uh, I didn't know enough about the details of it, nor was I preoccupied with it at yeah, that's that time. True. You had your own thing going on here. Well, you were running when, your own when, campaign. When the, when the press... Um, White press attacked black press for their coverage. All that was new because black people were seen as in several deadly ways by the press. It's cultural. We're seen as less intelligent than we are, less hardworking, less universal, more violent, and less patriotic. We're seen that way in many ways by the press every day. And every time the press said, but, but you can't win, that's a political statement. Uh, they would say a large crowd say, but so what? See, I can't win. I mean, those were, were saturating the avid seeds of, of defeat. There was another, uh, to borrow off that theme, there did seem to be another element of the coverage, which is that the more you started appealing to the mainstream of the Democratic Party, the more it was reported that you might lose support among black voters. And there seemed to be an inability for the press corps at the time to grapple with the idea that you might be able to do both. Yeah, that was a press problem for them, not for me, because black people have had a much easier route relating to white people than white people relating to black people. The white was, whites have been so indoctrinated on being superior and right, and blacks being inferior and wrong. And blacks unqualified. The price we had to pay to get our humanity affirmed from three fifths human. White scholars and philosophers and theologians and politicians and legal scholars believed deeply that stuff uh, that blacks could not use the same hotel, motel, park, or library. They, they, they believed that stuff. And and we, we learned to laugh at it. I mean, the day Dr. King gave the speech in Washington, what may be misleading is that the, the press now tends to cover the I Have a Dream part, the alliterative, poetic climax of a great speech. Uh, that day from South, well, from Florida across Texas up to Virginia, we couldn't use a single public toilet. Our money was kind of fit in the South. We couldn't buy ice cream at Howard Johnson. We couldn't uh, rent a room in Holiday Inn. Uh, black soldiers had to sit behind lots of POWs on American military bases. We couldn't stop along the roadside and to eat our sandwiches. We smoked the back of being in the forest, but we could not. We learned to live in a humiliation. But it's almost like saying, uh, it's because I'm in the slum. The slum is not in me. And you learn to develop a tough inner skin to offset the barrage of attacks upon your person every day. Um, and that's a part of the black experience is learning how to, how to fight this battle, this battle uh, for, for equality. Well, quickly, did you and, feel and, like and, you had and, to and, change and, the way and, you handle and, things get, to appeal get, to white uh, voters? Well, no, and, and get... Uh, uh, and to find a sense of, of, of justice and joy in living. 
No, I didn't have to change to get the white voters. White people had to hear what I had to say. Many whites couldn't hear. I, I, I talked with many whites who admired Dr. King in his death. We love martyrs, but we can't hear martyrs. They loved Dr. King's poetry. But they never came to hear him speak. They never made a contribution to this campaign. They never marched. But they want to glorify him in death, and they sought to wish him the worst in life. That's part of our experience. I remember uh, we would we go to these campaigns, we'd draw these crowds, and, people, and and there'd be lots of cheers. And the press said, yeah, they cheer him. They, they won't vote for him. They kept seeding the clouds. And the night I gave the speech in San Francisco, I suppose it was, and one of the may, may have been Dan Rather is reported said to people now whatever you're doing now bring your children in by the TV set stop everything come and listen listen to something uh, of course I couldn't hear that because I was focused on my speech but when the nation could hear me not uh, vetted by the press. I went around 55% in the ratings when they could hear me. But often blacks could not be heard for being seen, for being looked at. Uh, and that's overcoming the the, the, the the curse of color in, in culture. I was down in, in, in the Pittston strike down in the, in the coal mine in Appalachia country. And I remember being there with Cecil Roberts. And 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 the, the coal miners had been convinced not to vote for me at not the vote for me, Chuck Robb and others were leading the drive for, I guess, Mundell at that time. And I came to stand with those workers who, some of whom had been arrested, others were on their way to jail. When I walked there, it was kind of whispering, what's he doing, what's he doing here? I was invited by the, by the, by the, by the uh, coal miners union. And so Cecil got and Cecil said, well, he's here. And they kind of look and say, now, the question is, the guys you said we should vote for last year, and we put money up for it, they ain't here. And he's a guy that we, they was, we were told not to vote for. He is here. Would you rather have a, a white friend, a, a white enemy, black enemy, black, black friend, a white enemy? Bring, bring him on. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather have a black friend or a white enemy? And so you could just see barriers breaking. It's, it's almost like. You just had to get there. Can they back? You know, uh, uh, I, 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 don't give up on us. Yeah. Did you the, and, and we saw these barriers breaking down <coughs> in those small examples and in bigger ways. That's and that's why I know it, it laid the groundwork, you know, for for what happened. Mm-hmm. Did you have to develop a, years later? Did you have to develop like sort of tougher skin to sort of go into these places, or just? I mean, just balls to show up <laughs> and know that there's going to be people, say, coal miners who are, who are going to be like, why is he do, Why is he here? Or, you know, when you were campaigning, hostile rooms no, or I rooms? No, no, you know, you uh, as an African-American, we are, we may not be bilingual, but we're bicultural. We learn to work on, live on one side of town where we're confined and work on the other side of town. We, we learn to talk to white people early on. We have to, to survive. We have to we have to relate to white police and white judges and white juries and white lawyers and white owners and white bankers, white re- uh, white and, 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 and white and white bus drivers, white airline pilots. We we had to learn to live with that, and something within us said we could be that. Uh, we deserve to be that. Some of the opposite, I said it could happen. So part of the tension was to overcome those barriers. And I, I noticed that, you know, the Clinton, for example, uh, Bush and Dole got more white votes than Clinton. He got more white, black, and brown because he was able to penetrate the culture more. point where you thought to yourself, this is really clicking. I'm talking about the 88 race where you said, we're connecting. Well, the, the 84 convention speech response was clearly evidence that the party 
was responding to our message, and they were saying things like, right message, wrong messenger, that. And when we, when we won, Michigan, the party, panicked. And Clark Cliff and others had a meeting at the Washington Hotel in the new, in Washington. That was just anybody but Jackson campaign was in full motion. That's when I, when I watched what's happening with Trump today or what happened with Hillary Clinton today, just anybody but. I, I've been there before. What's it like? Well, you, you certainly cannot. You have to absorb your pain. Champions play with pain. You cannot react to it in many ways as Trump is doing. You have to have the capacity to suck it up and play with pain. You have to, something within you must say you fall down, but you get back up again because the ground is no place for champions. It's, it's an inner struggle because if you express outwardly how you feel, you'll be preaching anger and pain, and anger and pain does not move people. People come to hear you. They, they need hope and healing. They need you to be better, not bitter. And the more that you can play play your game with pain, the stronger you are. It's a measure of your strength. Someone said if, if you were to walk up to a, uh, a manager of a heavyweight boxer and you say, I just found a guy down the street. This guy is muscle-bound. He's fast. We can with one hand he can knock a hole in the wall, and the other hand he can knock the rest of the wall down. This guy can really hit because I saw him knock three people out. The manager might, and the, the 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 casual person might say, "Man, this guy's great." I saw him knock people out. The manager might say, "What about his jaw? Not just can he punch, can he take a lick?" And oftentimes the measure of strength is can you take a lick and keep on stepping. Because if, if you stop at the point of, of, of insult and choose to get even rather than get ahead, you cannot make progress. How you did must, you respond to the you Jackson choose, campaign? You must choose to get ahead rather than get even at the crossroads. How did you choose to respond to the Never, Never Jackson campaign? Anyone but Jackson. It was standard. I've seen it all of my life where African Americans had uh, superior talents. As a matter of fact, our psyche feasted on being underestimated. Uh, you know, the, the stories of Jesse Owens winning the race in 1936 in Berlin, and the white press anger was, and Hitler was a was a Nazi and and a fascist, and Hitler would not shake his hand, and Hitler was a bad guy. What do you think about Jesse Owens? He said, "Yeah, Roosevelt wouldn't shake my hand either." Oh, they didn't want to hear that part of it. <laughs> he wasn't invited to the White House either. Uh, the impact of Joe Lewis defeating Max Melling. That was big folklore because no one could defeat, you know, the Aryan champion mm-hmm. except for an African-American. That's what made him not just a, hero, a champion but a hero. You know, champions, when they win, people ride their shoulders. Uh, people put them on their shoulders. But heroes put the people on their shoulders. And that there are some breakthrough moments when the people are on your shoulder. Dr. King was not merely a champion, or Joe Lewis, or Jesse Owens, um, or Jim Brown, or, or Ali. They were heroes, because, or, or Jack Robinson, because on their shoulders the people rode. And so you, you learn to play that role in the society, and you gain... Strength from knowing you can you can handle it. I have a question about the ADA race, in the, and specifically in New York. It, you were campaigning at a time when New York was very divided and had a lot of a lot of horrible incidents, um, and that you you talked a little bit about it in one of the articles that we saw. Um, I'm referring to the beatings of whites, uh, sorry, of blacks by whites in Howard Beach, and there was the Bernie Getz, Getz incident. And you said one of the most disgusting things that can ever happen is that you take your time to build the coalition. And it gets caught on a nail and snags and tears. And I'm wondering if you remember these incidents and how you sort of repair those snags and tears and what you thought of, if you remember that time. Well, in life, the unanticipated happens. Uh, also, sort of serendipity, unanticipated findings, they also happen. And every day is another day's journey. 
and one has to have the capacity to cope and adjust and move forward. And when these uncertain storms come up, and they do come up, you have to have the capacity to have storm rules. Eyes open, mouth shut, and keep walking. If you stop, you're going to drown. Mud going to get in your shoes. You have to walk through storms. You cannot surrender. And that becomes the challenge for this generation, really, is some have become cynical about the slow movement of progress, and sometimes because of headwinds, and they tend to have access to schools and won't study as diligently as they must because uh, they have a false sense of equality. And they're not ready to fight the odds. They're, willing, they're, they're ready to be equal where equality doesn't exist. Uh, those students who went to, the, went to the, the white schools first to break through students, they knew they had to master uh, the theories of race inferiority. They were mentally prepared to fight that fight. And like Jackie Robinson, their manners, their behavior, their priorities, their men and I have a false sense of equality. And when you have that, you, you pay a big price. When did you realize that you weren't going to win? Was it Wisconsin? Well, you know, I accepted early on two definitions of winning. One was we may, we may not win the campaign because the odds were stacked against us, the endorsements and the money and the culture. But winning is changing. Uh, when we went from, the, went from um, denial of public facilities, the right to vote, we were winning. Um, and I knew that, that being on that stage when I watched people run for the first time as delegates, vote for the first time, change their minds. We were winning every day. Precious Sutton tells the story, used to tell the story about a woman calling the WLIB one day. And she said, y'all have been baiting, baiting them issues about can Jesse Jackson win or not. Every time he'd be up there baiting on them stages and don't be bouncing on basketball, he'd be winning. And Precious's favorite sermon was he'd be winning every day. So in some sense, when, when it's real dark, a little light will do you. So when they, when the two farmers say, but don't give up, it goes along, it, it outlasts a lot of negativity. And when a young kid like Barack at the time says, we can do this thing, it goes a long way. When a little kid in Cleveland asked the question, can this happen legally? And Lou, Lou Stokes prized and said, yeah, it can happen, it must happen. I mean, there are victors all along the way. And so I look in retrospect, and I was in the, on the White House lawn the day that Arafat was there and there was a big Palestinian Jewish delegation. And they signed the agreement with, with uh, um, Clinton. Mm -hmm. And people who were attacking me from being anti-Semitic because I talked about two-state solution. Senator Kranz, that's a great victory for me. It was just a great victory. Two-state solution? My God, from no state, no talk policy, two-state two, two solution? Uh, uh, Mandela walked out of jail that Sunday morning. I was down there in South Africa. He was considered a terrorist in South Africa, considered a legitimate government. When Barack went to Cuba a month or so ago, we went to Cuba, as you know, back in 84 and brought Americans home from Cuba. So we never stopped winning. We're still winning. Well, then, I that's guess, why the night when President Barack walked on that stage and my face full of tears, it was the moment, it was a moment, um, it was a moment that we had lived and died for. It was both uh, that moment and the memories. Because I remember being in Selma, Alabama. I remember those who couldn't be there that night who were already dead. And I wish Dr. King and Meg Evers could have been there just for 15 seconds to see that moment that night. At the same part we were in the night that they were throwing tear gas at the 6th Democratic Convention. Uh, I, I wish a guy like Sunshine and Cotton Reader, James Orange, names you would never recognize. Those guys took the heat on, on the s Sunday in Selma, Alabama.
not those who are now lifted up in high praise for positions held. But the base of that ruling rights act is the blood of some innocent people. So the memories of those persons who could make it to the high price place I was standing in, uh, I was there as a complimentary ticket. Uh, I cried for them. I wept for them. And I found joy in reaching finally a touchdown. We had a lot of first downs. That was a touchdown night. That was Reverend Jesse Jackson reminiscing about race and politics and his presidential campaigns in 1984 and 1988. A huge thanks to Nick Offenberg for recording the interview for us and to Christine Canetta for her usual deft editing of the podcast. Now, you can find Candidate Confessional on iTunes or at thehuffingtonpost.com. Please, just go find a random stranger on your walk home and tell him or her to subscribe and to rate the podcast, please. It'll be a way to make friends. Exactly. Next week, we bring you former Congressman Tom Perriello on the crazy first two years of the Obama administration and his loss in the 2010 Democratic bloodbath. Till then, dearest listener, happy trails. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.